0: You're listening to Resurrection Life Podcast with your hosts Father Steve Mattson and Richard Budd, the podcast of the Church of the Resurrection in Lansing, Michigan. In today's episode, we talk about Eastern Catholicism with Father Alexi Wolternist. We hear a reflection on redemptive suffering. And we hear a poem by Robert Herrick, Litany to the Holy Spirit, read by Maria O'Brien. Welcome to Resurrection Life Podcasts. Welcome to another uh, episode of Resurrection Life Podcast. This is your host Richard Budd, and with me, as always, Father Steve. How you doing, Father Steve?
1: I'm doing well. I, I'm. We're recording this right after our significant snowfall and I'm, yeah. I'm a happy camper yeah i love snow
0: good i was shoveling the other night and wondering how many cubic feet of snow have i moved in my life it's got to be significant i lived in the northeast for four years
1: well it's so. good you get those nor'easters Yeah, and it's good we i i love if it's going to be cold we might as well get snow that's my view
0: yeah exactly um with us today a we always talk about the weather yeah we always <laughs> Gosh, start we, with yeah, the we weather to
2: yeah. no start
1: <laughs> we're, we're from in Michigan, and that's what we do.
0: <laughs> we have a special guest with us today, uh, Father Alexei Wolternist. Uh, Father is a Melkite priest uh, here in Lansing, and we've invited him on. Maybe you all remember from our last episode, Father Steve had mentioned how he went and celebrated, uh, the, cons celebrated the, uh, the Divine Liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. And uh, we thought it'd be great to have Father Alexi on the show, introduce you to the parish, uh, give a chance to, um, uh, to share your story. So, welcome. Thank you. Um, let's, uh, let's just start uh, with a conversation maybe about how you, uh, you mentioned before we hit the record button that you actually grew up Catholic.
2: I'm
1: still Catholic. Yeah, You're still, <laughs>
0: sorry, so Roman, Roman Catholic. Catholic. Yes. I'm going to I'm going to screw that up. So don't be offended. It, uh, it
1: is so interesting how we you know, when we think of the East, it's so easy to think orthodox. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. So that you know that better than we do. I but. kept
0: telling myself say Latin instead <laughs> of Catholic, but yeah, yeah. then I
2: first chance I had I messed it up. So Yeah, it's interesting. So if you go to the Middle East, which is predominantly where our parishioners are from, they uh, if you say Roman Catholic, Rom Catholic, that means you're Melkite. Mm. If you say Latin, that means you're what we call Roman Catholic. Yeah. And if you're what we call, you know, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, they often call it Roman Orthodox. Oh, so then they come over here and say, "Oh, I'm Roman Catholic," but it looks a little different. Uh, it's just that
0: depending on it, how it, it the tradition. It all mixed up. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, how did you go from being a Latin Catholic to now serving as a priest in the Eastern Catholic Church?
2: Yeah. So uh, I didn't exactly go from being a Latin Catholic. So the way it uh, worked, you know, I went to Catholic school growing up. I was baptized in a Roman Catholic church, a Latin church. Um, But by the canons and the way the church law works is when you are baptized, regardless Mm -hmm. of which church you're baptized in, uh, you take on the church of your father if you're in the Catholic communion. Mm -hmm. So my father's instance, he was Russian Orthodox. Uh, He did, you know, what's pretty typical when you, before you get married, you convert, you become, you know, entered in the same communion. So he became, when he became Catholic, uh, he became Russian Catholic. That's just by default, um, when you're received into the Catholic communion. So by virtue of that, whenever me or any of my siblings got baptized, we were Russian Catholic. Yeah. So, you know, basically we, uh, I kind of had the typical, you know, Roman Catholic upbringing, went to Catholic school, uh, and, uh, Probably about in high school when my brother was at the seminary, he's talking to some people and like, hey, uh, we might have some canonical problems here, uh, you know? Because you mentioned your dad was just Russian Orthodox. Okay, he's probably Russian Catholic, and you know, one thing leads to another, and it turns out we were all Russian Catholic. Yeah, yeah. My mom was the only one who was not Russian Catholic. <laughs> uh, so, you know, basically for me, I, so uh, you, yes.
1: your, your dad, your mom, you all attended a, a Latin right. Yes, Church, sure. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So this
2: is actually very, very typical. I'll, I'll run into, you know, pe- people that are, you know, canonically parishioners of mine, uh, you know, that are Melkite and they're going to a Roman Catholic church. And uh, there was someone I was talking to who said, oh yeah, my, um, I go to a Roman Catholic church, but my dad used to go to your church. I said, where was we, he born? He said, oh, he's born in Lebanon. I said, was he Melkite? Yes, but we're Roman Catholic. I said, hate to break it to you, you're actually Melkite. It's yeah. If your dad's It's whatever your church, your father is, Um, and you know, kind of in the thought of the canons, there's this whole notion of you know, the the churches uh, need to have some sort of circumstances by which they can be handed on, Mm -hmm. and they're they're handed on just simply by uh, the by whatever your father was. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So basically, I went to a the Russian Catholic Church uh, with my older brother. I guess was a sophomore in high school at the time. Um, in New York city. So there's, I guess at the time there are three Russian Catholic churches in the U S they're very small, probably the most prominent Russian Catholic is, um, father Walter Sischek. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I'm sure many people are familiar with, with God in Russia and he leadeth me. So the Russikum, the church there, I think when people will read it, they'll often think, oh, they're just, you know, a bunch of Roman Catholics. There used to be a Russian Catholic branch of the Jesuits.
0: Oh, okay. Um, I didn't know that.
2: Yeah, Go so ahead. so they they went to Russia. Obviously, the large large majority of them were martyred, uh, trying to minister to the faithful in the communist Soviet Union. Um, so basically, I went to the the church in, in uh, New York City, and you know, I just it was my first experience of liturgy, uh, where I just identified with it as this is something awesome, and not kind of in like the. You know, awesome dude, but in the sense of, wow, this is literally truly worthy of awe. Um, you know, I talked to the priest after and he said, Oh yeah, by the way, like this actually is your patrimony. Uh and um I like I just was struck at that moment and I said, All right, this I instantly felt at home. I can't describe it other than that. I just felt at home. Um and uh And you were how old? I was a sophomore in high school, so I guess I was sixteen then. Um so Yeah. And then kind of you start reading and, uh, and you know, what I found was, you know, for me personally, there was a patrimony there of, uh, you know, this, this needs to be preserved, but also I found a way of life that, um, you're reading through stuff from the early church and the church fathers. And so, okay, well, what are we doing? You're reading about the fast in the early church or the theology. And, you know, you'll go to Vespers, uh, at the church. And okay, well, the, this text at Vespers is taken from this saint who also wrote this theology at the council. And it just, it all lines up mm-hmm. so perfectly. And then, you know, the way that you're you're fasting also lines up with what you're reading about in the reflections of the lives of the desert fathers. So it just appealed to me that there's kind of a, a you know, a holistic approach to everything uh, in in the Christian life. And it just felt like it was mine. Um, so Yeah, they had to kind of hook line and sinker from that point. It was probably from like first like, oh my gosh, I'm actually Russian Catholic. To oh, I'm bought in. It probably took like two three weeks. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: So, so uh, were you living in New York City, New Jersey, New Jersey? Okay. So it it was a commute. Did you end up going? Uh, Did your whole family go after you? uh, I kind of did it on
2: my own for a little bit. Um, So, you know, basically. My brother would take me back a couple times, and once I got my license, you know, you get a clunker is an hour out. But it's um, it's an hour like, it's different from like here to Detroit. It's an hour, hour fifteen. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever driven in New York City. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like open warfare. Yeah. Uh, So it's actually an advantage you have a clunker because as you're trying to merge and like the Mercedes doesn't want to merge, they see you got a clunker. They're getting out of your way because they know you don't care about your car. So it actually, it's a very good distinctive advantage when you're, when you're commuting into the clunker. Yeah, yeah.
0: So that's actually really... I, I was struck by the fact that you were, you were always Russian Catholic, even though you didn't know it. I've been working on some projects um, uh, regarding the domestic church and this idea that f- faith really is not a project of an institution it's a project of the family that the institution assists and so even when we bring children to baptism they're baptized in the faith of the family the faith of the father and the mother and so whether or not you even knew it you were russian catholic um so i just so often i think we get locked into like the churches you know the building and and the liturgy and whatnot and then really, it's it's a lived reality
1: that takes place in the home. So let me, I'm just curious, uh, what was, obviously, the, the Eastern liturgy is significantly different from the, the Western liturgy, the, the Latin rite, and, but what was your experience of the average Sunday mass at the church where your family had been attending?
2: Yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey, uh, and our parish was, uh, is that an Italian parish, and uh it was pretty uh orthodox liturgically so uh you know it, you know, growing up in the 90s you kind of see a little bit of everything um and it was unremarkable in the sense that it was On on track. Like, there wasn't any, like, I never had to put up with a lot of the silliness. Um, You didn't have clown masses. Yeah. Whereas my wife growing up in Oregon literally had clown masses. So people will say, oh, yeah, clown masses. Mm -hmm. And she's like, I know you joke about it, but odds are you haven't actually been to a clown mass. I've had experiences. So she'll be like, no, I
1: I will say that I've never never celebrated one. (laughs) I've never even been to one. (laughs) Uh,
2: So the, uh, it's, so yeah, it was pretty. It was was a nice parish, and it was was an Italian national parish. So, um, you know, the Roman Catholics, they have this phenomenon, especially um, in areas where there's lots of different. So in this one-square-mile town uh, where we go to church, you had the Italian national parish, you had the Polish national parish, and then you had the Everybody Mm -hmm. Else parish, which is Irish or whatnot. Um, And uh, this is just in one town. And the next town over, it's it's New Jersey, so it was very, very uh, Catholic-dense for a long time yeah yeah I grew
0: up in a town of about 30, well, maybe forty or fifty thousand. We had thirteen parishes, yeah because every nationality had their own yeah. you know and the Germans ended up with two or yep. the and the polish so yeah I, I, yeah we we had this similar kind of structure
2: yeah mm-hmm. uh, but back to what you were talking about before it's we have this interesting notion um for families, so when you're the wedding ceremony is different obviously mm-hmm. um and when you at the wedding they have a crowning. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's this, this, uh, this notion and theology of returning to paradise Mm -hmm. and Eden. So the, the crowns will be laurels, uh, and, uh, you know, the prayers are asking for, um, kind of for fruitfulness in the marriage, uh, for begetting of children, another kind of fruitfulness, so kind of this fulfillment of Eden. Um, but the crowning also, uh, you're crowned as kind of the king and queen of your household, and it's not uncommon for um, your husband and wife to be referred to as the priest and the priestess mm-hmm. of their household. So, uh, you know, obviously as a priest, you know, before bed I give my kids a blessing, and the priests do it a very specific way. Um, that your hand, it's kind of the way you make your hand, it's uh, in, with the letters Nika. So it's very clear that the priest is blessing you as Christ. But for parents, uh, they'll, uh, they'll do a, pretty much the same blessing. Uh, and the the kids will kiss their their father's hand as he gives the blessing if the father is out on travel or whatever the mother will give the blessing um and also that that also extends to godparents too mm-hmm. so for us like godparents is like it's a very serious thing at your last judgment you're know, you're liable for your godchildren mm-hmm. so the uh the godparents can also bless their godchildren in the same way as as parents um so it's just kind of a it just reinforces this thing that each um so in a way, the crown and creates another church uh, mm-hmm. that you know, and that, that's kind of what makes the Catholic Church Catholic. It's really a coming together of all of us under the Eternal High Priest Christ Himself. But it's these churches coming into communion with each other, um, with these different households. Yeah. Um, uh, every time we receive the Eucharist, which you know, if you look at if you're at church and you look around and see the parish, it is kind of a beautiful sight where it's we all constitute this one body of Christ. Uh, through the Eucharist, but then we kind of go out in the world and evangelize as you know little kind of missionary pods as, as separate churches. Yeah, sure. yeah.
1: In passing, you, you mentioned blessing your children. Yeah. So maybe talk a little bit about the fact that you are a married priest and yeah. that's part of the tradition and just talk a little bit about uh, how the the Eastern Catholics make those determinations. I think you are relatively new in the Melkite church. The bishop has allowed married men to be ordained, right? Is that a recent um, change or so
2: it, it the United States is this interesting thing. So the, the I Malachis, mean, I think it's an
1: issue of, of discipline more yes. so than it's always been possible.
2: Right. Yeah so the 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 Malachis, we've always had married priests. Um so people have often you know as a married priest you you know you run your own Catholics and you say, Oh it's it's about time and I say, you know, Saint Peter was the one who first did it. We haven't changed anything since St. <laughs> Peter. So uh there's so the uh you know, Rome. Uh, my understanding is that, that Pope Francis uh, kind of loosened some uh, guidelines on married priests, but the Melkites we've all uh, we've had married priests in the United States, but um, especially in the Old Country. So, I think in the United States, I haven't looked at the numbers, but if I had to guess, probably the majority of our priests are married. Um, and uh, yeah, the so I think when um, like we, I think the Melkites have a higher proportion of married priests. So. But to kind of answer your question, like we've, you know, people will get into, ask about the theology of it. Um, And, you know, the, the the lions have their theology that kind of uh, precludes married men, but there's, there's certain early church councils that they, some local councils said, oh, you can't have married priests, or if you, after you're ordained, you have to be continent. Um, But also there's, there's canons for other councils that say, if you are a um, a clergyman and you refuse to uh, concelebrate the married man, you are deposed. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, a little over the map, and it is it was largely regional. So, uh, you know, the the Eastern churches we've always had this tradition, um, and then you know the kind of ebbs and flows depending on the historical region, historical time, the region it occurs in. Um, but you know, as a married man, it's it just changes the dynamic a little. Uh, so, uh, there's kind of this undercurrent that the, the priest is kind of selected from the community and he just offers the sacrifice on behalf of the whole community. So, you know, just as, uh, you know, it'd be really interesting for a, uh, a married man to be, uh, you know, at a monastery mm-hmm. and kind of serving as the priest of the monastery, you know, if, if the monastic life is that, that radical kind of it, it goes. It could go the same way. This doesn't say that you know monks can't be, you know, good pastors or anything. Um, but like the Russians will still hold this uh, in certain areas pretty strictly, where a monk is not allowed to be a pastor at a church. So Saint John Kronstadt is probably the most famous example, where uh, he wanted to be a parish priest and he you know was ready to be ordained, and they refused to ordain him unless he was married first. Mm. Um, so the Melchites have never had that strict line. Um, yeah. as far as I know, none of the Eastern Catholic churches did, but the Russians still kept that tradition. Um, so it, it, you know, it also, it just kind of, it's just a little different. You know, I think people, uh, sometimes will want to like universalize things. Um, but I think the way that I look at it is God has this path. We We have this notion of the, our personal economy. So how does God save each of us? And, you know, at a certain point you can be a little agnostic about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where uh, my kind of approach is, this is where God put me. I'm not going to ask too many questions, and I'm you know I'm thankful to be uh, blessed, and I leave it at that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's kind of how how I approach these things.
0: Now, just for um, for interest' sake, um, is it correct that th- your bishops are celibate?
2: Or are they, yes. Okay. Yeah. So our bishops are all uh, celibate. The, um, depending on the historical period, they had to become monks before they were ordained okay. bishops. Um, but yes, all of our bishops are celibate. Okay.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you, I think you met your wife at Steubenville, is that right? Before? Yes, we met once. Okay, we yes. met once there. And then you must have caught up with, was it in D.C.? Is that where?
2: Yep. So, oh, uh, no. you know, before moving, I move, moved to Man- Lansing, September 1st. Uh, You know, we met in Washington, D.C. We were there about 10 years. Um, So we met at, uh, it was a fundraiser for a mission trip at someone's house. We kind of hit it off, and, you know, one thing led to another, and then we got married. Now, had
1: you already been in seminary? Was that still to come?
2: Uh, That was still to come. Uh, So I was, at the time, I was a sub-deacon. That's kind of one of the peculiarities of the East. We still have, with the... uh, the West calls like the minor orders. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, for us, our subdeacons can get married uh, in the, the Greek tradition. So we, uh, you know, we started dating. She, it was interesting. So we met right before Lent. And for us, um, Lent is very, very, very busy for us. Uh, there's just uh, a lot of, you know, you're doing the fasting, you're doing the praying. So I basically said, don't worry after Lent, But I said, you know, if you want to come to one of the services, you're welcome. And she came to one, and then she kept on coming back. So uh, we went on our first date. uh, It was Lazarus Saturday. So the Saturday before Palm Sunday, we went out for coffee. Um, And then we we kind of went on dates after that.
0: Was she raised Latin or?
2: She was. Okay, Yep, in Oregon. Clown masses. Oh, that's right. She had <laughs>
1: <laughs> That should hit me off. <laughs> I don't think there's any Eastern climaxes. <laughs> <No>. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> I,
2: I haven't heard of it, but, you know, it's... It's possible. Yeah.
0: Now, um, uh, let's kind of shift a little bit more. I mean, I know we've already been, been doing this, but talking a little bit more about the per- particularities of Eastern uh, Catholicism. Uh, you know, most of us, I think don't have a whole lot of experience with Eastern Catholics. Um, we want to have, you know, fellowship and, and brotherhood, but we just don't have as many opportunities uh, to meet you all. Yeah. Um, so for, you know, the average Catholic in the pew, if you're going to try to explain to them what the differences and the similarities are, I mean, are there theological differences or are they more differences in, in emphasis or,
2: you Yeah. Know? Well, maybe if I can back up a little, I think, a lot of folks will look at it and say, it looks different. It's foreign to me, but the way I would think about it, if I were uh, a Roman Catholic is it's like, you're going to a family reunion. They're the cousins that you uh, like, you might know their name. You might know one of the aunts, but they're like hugging and kissing you. But it's like, okay, well I guess we're family. And it's the reality of how well you know them or not. doesn't mm-hmm. change that. They're your family. Yeah, yeah, And there's still that, that bond of love for us, you know, communion Uh, that, you know, we're in communion with each other and that means that we're supposed to share this fellowship, communion with one another. Um, so like I say that as if you experience this foreignness and that feeling, um, it's that, you know, I would kind of recommend people kind of look at it the other way of, no, we are family and it's a foreignness simply by not having spent the time together yet. Um, that's the beauty of time. Yeah, that it goes in the direction that you can always add to it. That's
0: a really good way of thinking about it.
2: Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So it's you know the the Eastern churches. So the Melkites are spe- are an interesting peculiarity with the, the Eastern churches because the Melkites historically were the church that Saint Peter founded in Antioch. So his successor there is our patriarch. Okay. So a lot of these the Eastern Catholic churches, there's these unia documents that. Okay, well, we we're a diocese with bishops or uh, just simply, like in the case of the Russian Catholic, we were one priest. Uh, we want to enter into communion. Okay, we're drafting these documents. Here's basically a treaty of communion. The Melkites don't have such a thing. Um, you know, we're, we're an apostolic church that's in communion with Rome. So whenever our patriarch is elected, he'll send a letter of communion to Rome. They can celebrate a, uh, a mass together or a divine liturgy. We're in communion, um, and uh, so it's so Melkites are kind of pe- peculiar in that. Um, but with that comes, you know, their the theology is as different as the liturgy is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we ha- we we have several different liturgies, you know, to name a couple like the Divine Litur- Liturgy of Saint John Chrysostom, as you mentioned, the Liturgy of Saint Basil, which we do during Lent and certain feast days, the Pre-Sanctified Liturgy, um, and there's a couple others that are used uh, infrequently. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people, they want it to be, uh, you know, everything is exactly identical. Um, but that's not how the church operates, uh, or operated historically. Mm -hmm. Uh, so there was this diversity of theology, um and you know i don't want anyone to interpret it that that means that there's any allowance for heterodoxy or heresy obviously not sure. so you have these ecumenical councils which they drew the lines um but i think a way that roman Catholics could think about it is there's you know there's these long standing um kind of debates with the franciscan's dominicans you name it in the order so obviously there's a lot for some mm-hmm. sort of theological debate and disagreement um and kind of that that the east plays into that so uh, you know, you just the historical reality of you have churches that existed thousands of miles apart doing their own liturgy, their own center of the intellectual life, right? So like in the early church councils, if you're reading the history, it's, you know, like we had the church in Alexandria, they were pushing this theology and then the church in Antioch and they're kind of like doing their own thing and uh, all right, we got to call a council and then they kind of brawl it out a uh, cogent theology comes out and then depending on the council, they go back and forth and have another one to really settle it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, you know, in, in the church, uh, there is are these kind of varying theologies. Um, and it's kind of it's kind of oh, hard to use the word theology, because I think a lot of people think that that means that there can be heterodoxy. Yeah. Like, that's that's not what you know, I'm suggesting here. But I think a good example is like with the marriage. Yeah. Right. So for us, if you kind of will talk to someone who's been catechized typically, they'll lean into this language on the priest and the priestess of a home, uh, ministering to their children, and kind of having their table be a bounty for anyone that enters the home. Where it's not um, unknown in the West, but it's not stressed.
1: No. Yeah. And, and it's one of the things that, that I found just going to the Divine Liturgy, and I, I prayed up at the Ukrainian Catholic monastery up in, in the Keweenaw, the, the theological richness of and the repetition of your liturgies. So it it is pedagogical. It teaches in, in depth. Whereas we've got a lot of definitions, it seems to me that your liturgy, the, the liturgy in the East, teaches in a way of by repetition and it goes deep in a way that unless the priest is predisposed to do so in the West, never happens, or it, it it's at least at risk. So the, we would say the priest or the, the father, husband, father is the priest of the domestic church, but that requires, that's never a part of any liturgy. That requires a priest to bring it into the homily uh, should he choose, mm-hmm. yeah, or the deacon.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting, is the liturgy uh does have a major catechetical role as you mentioned right so for us we had the feast of the encounter with simeon uh on the second uh so like you have the we call the traparia which are some of the propers the interchangeable songs so for um the encounter it's halo full of grace virgin and mother of god from you has arisen the son of justice christ our god enlightening those who sin in darkness and you too just elder Simeon rejoice for you carried in your arms the redeemer of our souls who grants us res- resurrection that's obviously very catechetical so you're it's, it's dark- and I'm
1: guessing that was a refrain that kept coming
2: yes exactly so you know you go to divine liturgy you, so vespers the night before so before for all the feast days we'll have a festal vespers we sing that several times the that Traparion several times at Orthros, which is the morning prayer, you'll sing that several times. At Divine Liturgy, you'll sit, sing it several times. Your kids here at our church, they're singing at home seven, several times until you go crazy and tell them to stop. But uh, it's, it, so it's, it's interesting. It's, you know, okay, it's the feast of the encounter. Uh, what does, what's the theology of the feast encounter of the encounter? Well, I've heard the Treparion. That's what occurs, and then you can theologize off of it. Um, you know, it, it's interesting. It's like for us, our, Music obviously had a very has a catechetical role. Um, you know, one of the other famous ones is you know the way that Arius became Arius, was he's kind of like a rock star of the uh, early church that he took all of his heresies and put them to music. Mm. So they must have been real kind of headbangers if, <laughs> if, they, if they were really getting around that much. But the um, the same thing like for with the icons is the you know the church wasn't always entirely literate. Uh, so you the church the icons are also catechetical. You know they're Um, you know, I know that Roman Catholics, they have different religious art for us, largely it's only icons Mm -hmm. and icons are very, very strictly governed, um, because they're considered theological statements. So, uh, in a proper icon, for example, like you can't have St. Joseph holding Jesus, uh, Mm -hmm. unless it's very, very strict, um, criteria, largely, um, only the mother of God holds Jesus. Because it shows that she's the mother of God, sure. you do not want anyone to even be entertaining. You know, also we've had several, you know, heresies of you know what's the role of the mother of God, so that kind of sh- strengthens the the guardrails around it. So, um, you know, so for for icons, it's their statements of theology, and th- the music and everything is just they're all catechetical. They're all statements of theology, um, and That's it's a- kind of nice you can just you theologize and catechize just by you can learn it all just largely by absorption.
0: Yeah, the theology is within the signs and the symbols, I think. Yeah. Um, I think in Catholicism we've or I did it again. And in, in the in the west we've leveled that out a bit. We've become a little bit more heady and and notional in the way that we teach and and so we don't have the same kind of theology that's well, readily and, available and, in in our, way, and I, our, I
1: would just say uh, for those who choose to pursue it, we oh, become yeah. heavy, and this is the danger, right? Mm-hmm. The average uh, family and individual in the pews may or may not pick any of that up, mm-hmm. whereas those who study, I think, I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it can be found in. Uh, I I was intrigued as I was thinking about the, the catechetical dimension of of. of uh, Vespers and the Divine Liturgy Father Basil of Happy Memory the former superior of the Ukrainian Catholic uh, Monastery uh, he God, God rest his soul died from COVID um, a month or two ago. Anyway he was saying that he was Latin right and ended up uh, becoming by ritual and then uh, served at, as the superior of that community. He said I learned my theology by praying Vespers mm-hmm. in the east yeah. And so especially the Marian dimension and, and the, um, you know, the, the creeds come alive in Eastern vespers, much more so than, than I've found in the Latin rite. And some people will hear this and say, am I tempted to become Eastern? No, but I do think that as your wife found when she started, I suppose she was probably interested in you but she was also taken with the literature. It might be the opposite. It might be the the church that (laughs) sold her. Okay, but but, but I guess my point is uh, there is something about it, and I want to encourage people from the parish to join you for Vespers uh, and just to taste this. And if they feel drawn, if I'm not mistaken, we talked about canon law earlier, I think a Latin Rite Catholic, when he or she turns 14, can declare for the East. So they can become... Uh, i think i think that's the stipulation at 14 mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. so and you certainly any of the roman catholics can latin rite catholics can fulfill their obligation by attending the divine liturgy at at saint joseph melkite catholic church
0: yeah, yeah so i think that's a good way for us to to wrap up this this week yeah if we'll, um,
1: we'll talk again about uh, well just one question though for you, you
0: before as we wrap up uh if Somebody is interested in attending the Divine Liturgy, but they've never done it before. What's your advice?
2: So my advice is just come and just pray and don't be self conscious Sit in the back? Yeah, don't sit in the back. <laughs> okay. the, uh they're uh so like
1: Are those spots taken?
2: <laughs> the spots are taken and uh
1: is that a problem in your church too? Everybody sits in the back. Yeah, it's, it's a universal. thing. Yeah. The, uh, we are one. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: you know, I think that people can be intimidated by the external forms being different. But like I said, it's, it's you know, we have this commonality of being Christians. So it's, it's their home as well. You know, and how do you know that? They can receive the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. If you can receive the Eucharist in our church, which we, you can as, by being in communion with us, it's, it's your home. It, full stop. Um, so I I think some people will come in and they say, "Oh, I, where are the books? I got to find the books." You're gonna get lost in books. Just come and just pray. And uh, you, there's actually a lot of similarities that you'll you'll see uh, for some songs. And um, you know, it's like I mentioned, it's, it's experiential with the icons and the singing. And if you're stuck looking for a book or figuring out where you are, you're gonna just miss you're everything. Miss it, yeah. Um, you know, and it's. Uh, it's like going to Thanksgiving and then asking like, well, can I see like the cookbook? It's, no, you go to, you're, you're at someone's house, you go to Thanksgiving, just take it easy. Like let the host take care of you. And I, I'm, you know, I'm trying to get it to the point, our, our parish, you know, with, um, they're predominantly Arabs in the Melkite tradition, which doesn't mean it's an Arab national church. It's, you know, anyone, anyone's welcome. I'm Russian myself, not uh, an Arab, but there's a real um, sense of hospitality so when you come, uh, you're going to leave with some sort of food or something. <laughs> um, but also in the liturgy, they want you to feel welcome. And, uh, you know, if you, if you really feel like I don't know what's going on, ask them like, hey, am I doing this right? Someone will take you under their wing and they'll, they'll be fine. Like they're just going to be overjoyed that there's visitors. And you know, for them, like your honor uh, as a virtue is tied up with your hospitality. Mm. So they, they really— That's
1: distinctive of the Melkite.
2: Yeah, I think Mediterranean Arabs, Meditra- Arabs yeah, yeah. at large. Um, it's a it's a real virtue. Um, so if uh, you know, you have someone over your house, you, you whatever you have, you put out your best in front of them. Your best food, your best china, silverware, you name it. Um, so you know if you uh, kind of if you kind of you know if you come in, like they're very excited to uh, f- for visitors. Um, where uh, that that's a very uh, interesting like virtue with the Arabs. Whereas if you uh, going to a Russian parish. Historically Russians are if anyone comes as a potential invader they warm up they will warm up. So that's the other end of it. If you go to a church and they're not entirely welcoming, sometimes it's a cultural thing where okay you're you're not uh, you're, you're not exactly the same as us, but they will warm up and mm-hmm. next thing you know, you know, they'll they'll be buddies. So don't get don't be discouraged. Okay. Well,
1: and, and just to to state the obvious, uh, the liturgy uh, has some elements of when I was there Greek and some Arabic. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is predominantly in English. So. Yes.
2: So I, I don't speak Arabic. Yeah. Uh so uh it's most almost entirely in English. Depending on the Melchi church, if the community's, you know, fresh off the boat, they'll be and it's an immigrant parish, they'll have a lot of Arabic. Um but it's almost entirely in English. And if something's in Greek or Arabic, it's usually you know, holy God, holy mighty one, holy immortal one will do English Greek Arabic okay. or Lord of Mercy. You know, it's so at no point, uh, you know I had to guess, Father um, Steve, at no point were you like, I don't know what's going on.
1: No, and, and, and it was clear to me that, it, so we, we began the, the, the litany, the Lord have mercy in English, then we went to Greek, and then we went to Arabic. So, yeah. yeah it was, and it was so repetitive, I was able to, to join in with the Arabic even. I, see, I guess yeah. I speak Arabic. <laughs> 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 Not so Well, that, what, a, what a delight to have you join us. Yeah, uh, thank you for the invite. Yeah, yeah
0: I want to I wanna go to uh, Divine Liturgy now. I'm going to bring my family. Absolutely. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, yep. br- bring them by.
1: We can. We I, and your, your 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 daughter, I think, is four, and your son too. Or is yeah, that...
2: my daughter's five, my five. son is okay. two. Okay. Yeah. So uh-huh. one of the have, interesting have to things we to to touch house, on then. is that uh, you know, we commune our children and we baptize and confirm mm-hmm. oh, them oh, too. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, that, that can be for another day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. They're fully yeah, initiated indeed. Catholics. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Well, that'll be it for this week. We'll have Father Alexian next time to talk about Lent. But for now, God bless. Indeed. God bless you. As we go through life, all of us experience suffering of one kind or another. In the following reflection from Sean O'Neill, we hear how we can allow the Lord to transform the pain that we may experience, whether in body, mind, or spirit, into spiritual growth and healing.
3: Redemptive Suffering Suffering is part of our human existence. Suffering stems partly from the fact that we are mortal human beings and partly from the mass of sin which has accumulated over the course of history and continues to grow unabated today. Certainly we have to do whatever we can to reduce suffering, to avoid as far as possible the suffering of the innocent, to soothe pain and to give assistance in overcoming mental suffering. These are obligations and they are part of the fundamental requirement of the Christian life. Nevertheless, there are several ways in which suffering can also be a vehicle for hope. First of all, suffering is a means of transformation. We are all sinful and fallen and we cannot cure ourselves. Even with the best will and even though we give up everything for God, we still can't become wholly perfect and fully human unless God does it in us. One of the main ways he does that is by allowing us to experience trials, difficulties and pains. These are the hammer blows of the divine sculptor who is shaping us anew as a work of art. In Hebrews chapter 12 we read, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as children. My child, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or lose heart when you are punished by him. For the Lord disciplines those whom he loves and chastises every child whom he accepts. Endure trials for the sake of discipline. God is treating you as children. For what child is there whom a parent does not discipline? Now, discipline always seems painful rather than pleasant at the time but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Another way that suffering produces hope is when we convey hope to others by suffering with them, being with them in their hour of need, commiserating with them, striving to alleviate or remove their unnecessary suffering, offering comfort or condolence or giving meaning to their suffering by placing it in the context of God's plan. The word compassion means to suffer with. We can, in some small way, participate in the sufferings of others and offer solidarity with them through our actions. Almsgiving, works of charity, helping the poor, especially if it costs us something either in money or our own effort, are all ways in which we can transmit hope. But being there for other people also increases our hope because we begin to experience God's own mercy and compassion working through us. And in the same way that he bore our burden for us and with us by becoming a man and dying to save us, so we can emulate him in our compassion for others. Pope Benedict XVI, in his encyclical Spe Salvi, recommends a revival of the old Catholic tradition of offering up our sufferings for the benefit of others. Here's what he says There used to be a form of devotion, perhaps less practiced today but quite widespread not long ago, that included the idea of offering up the minor daily hardships that continually strike at us like irritating jabs, thereby giving them a meaning. In this way, even the small inconveniences of daily life could acquire meaning and contribute to the economy of good and of human love. Maybe we should consider whether it might be judicious to revive this practice ourselves. Showing compassion to others... And offering up our own hardships for their sake is a way of participating in the sufferings of Christ. Teresa of Avila relates how God spoke directly to her on this subject. On another day the Lord told me this. Do you think, daughter, that merit lies in enjoyment? No, rather it lies in working and suffering and loving. "'Believe, daughter, that my father gives greater trials "'to anyone he loves more, and love responds to these.'" Viktor Frankl, whose years as a prisoner in Nazi concentration camps spurred him to write his book Man's Search for Meaning, speaks of the value of suffering. "'Prisoners,' he says, who possessed an inner life "'and therefore possessed hope in something "'outside their physical situation,' were the ones who survived. Those with no hope were the ones who literally lost the will to live. He says that you could always tell when this happened to a prisoner because he would smoke all his cigarettes. Each prisoner had a meagre ration of smokes and eked them out very carefully, putting off the pleasure and making them last as long as possible. When a man smoked all his cigarettes, one after the other, it was a sign that he had lost all hope in the future and could no longer see beyond the present moment to any kind of fulfilment or release. He had resigned himself to die. In contrast, he speaks of those who had hope and were cheerful in suffering and sickness, and even when they were dying. Here's what he says. This young woman knew that she would die in the next few days. But when I talked to her, she was cheerful in spite of this knowledge. I am grateful that fate has hit me so hard, she told me. In my former life, I was spoiled and did not take spiritual accomplishments seriously. Pointing through the window of the hut, she said, This tree here is the only friend I have in my loneliness. Through that window she could see just one branch of a chestnut tree and on the branch were two blossoms. I often talk to this tree, she said to me. I was startled and didn't quite know how to take her words. Was she delirious? Did she have occasional hallucinations? Anxiously I asked her if the tree replied. Yes. What did it say to her? She answered, It said to me, I am here, I am here, I am life, eternal life. All suffering can be redemptive and can be used to draw us closer to Christ and to allow us to change more into his image. So why is it that suffering ends up embittering so many people? Because a lot of people have never really heard the good news of the gospel. Suffering is an integral part of this life because of the fall. It's going to happen to us anyway, but as long as we continue to hope in anything other than Christ, every time we suffer we will become angry or depressed because we have been thwarted. God allows suffering to happen to us in the hope that it will bring us to change and purify us so that we will be ready for heaven when the time comes. But there's another way in which our pain can contribute to eternal life. By giving us the opportunity to unite our sufferings to the sufferings of Christ. Hope is the virtue that allows us to bear suffering, persevere and make sense of pain. Job's hope in God was unbounded and unshaken by the calamities that befell him. In the 13th chapter of the book of Job we hear him say these astonishing words. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Ultimately, our goal and our destination are in heaven. We know that this is a veil of tears and that suffering is inevitable. Let's make the best use of whatever suffering comes our way. Let's help those who suffer by weeping with those who weep and mourning with those who mourn. Jesus came to suffer with us in this life and in the end died for us. Let's unite our suffering to his. Let's offer our sufferings to the Lord. In fact, let's rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that through them God is purifying us and preparing us for our heavenly home. Let's pray now and ask God for the grace to suffer well. Jesus, you suffered and died for us. We offer to you our trials, and tribulations, small and great, and unite them to your sacrifice on the cross. Give us the grace to have compassion on each other and to befriend those who suffer. Help us to endure whatever suffering comes our way with a cheerful heart, open and accepting of the purification we need to undergo in order to be saints. We offer ourselves to you now, Lord, and ask for your blessing on our lives. Amen.
0: We finish this episode with a poem by Robert Herrick, Litany to the Holy Spirit, read by Maria O'Brien.
4: Robert Herrick was a 17th century English lyric poet and Anglican cleric. He is best known for his book of poems, Hesperides, Herrick was ordained in 1623, and in 1629 became the vicar of Dean Prior in Devonshire. In 1647, after the English Civil War, Herrick was ejected from his vicarage for refusing the Solemn League and Covenant, a, an agreement between the Scottish Covenanters and the English Parliamentarians. He then returned to London and lived in Westminster, depending on the charity of his friends and family. He spent some time preparing his book of lyric poems and had them printed in 1648 with a dedication to the Prince of Wales. Herrick wrote over 2,500 poems, about half of which appear in his major work, Hesperides. His later poetry was of a more spiritual and philosophical nature. His poems were not widely pil- popular at the time they were published. His style was strongly influenced by Ben Jonson by the classical Roman writers and by the poems of the late Elizabethan area. This must have seemed quite old fashioned to an audience whose tastes were turned to the complexities of the metaphysical poets such as John Doan and Andrew Marvel. His works were rediscovered in the early 19th century and have been regularly printed ever since. The following poem entitled Litany to the Holy Spirit hints at the fear of death that was common at the time when life expectancy was low. It also alludes to the Christian spiritual battle and the general distress of life with the constant refrain, sweet spirit comfort me. Litany to the Holy Spirit. In the hour of my distress, when temptations me oppress and when I my sins confess, sweet spirit comfort me. When I lie within my bed, sick in heart and sick in head, and with doubts discomforted, sweet spirit, comfort me. And when the house doth sigh and weep, and the world is drowned in sleep, yet mine eyes the watch do keep, sweet spirit, comfort me. When the passing bell doth toll, and the furies in a shoal come to fright a parting soul, sweet spirit, comfort me. When the tapers now burn blue and the comforters are few, and that number more than true, sweet spirit, comfort me. When the priest his last hath prayed, and I nod to what is said, cause my speech is now decayed, sweet spirit, comfort me. When God knows I'm tossed about, either with despair or doubt, yet before the glass be out, sweet spirit, comfort me. When the tempter me pursueth, with all the sins of my youth, and half damns me with untruth, sweet spirit, comfort me. When the flames and hellish cries fright mine ears and fright mine eyes, and all terrors me surprise, sweet spirit, comfort me. When the judgment is revealed, and that opened which was sealed, when to thee I have appealed, sweet spirit, comfort me.
0: We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Resurrection Life Podcast. Please tune in next time for more conversation, reflections, and Catholic culture. We'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to drop us a line to give us feedback or suggest future topics to feature, write us at podcast at corelancing.org. You can find the Church of the Resurrection online at corelancing.org. Thanks for listening, and God bless.